0: Childhood experiences are extremely impactful for every human's lived experience. These can shape and mold future behaviors and actions. Therefore, it is extremely important that museums are conscious of the weight of childhood educational experiences and of the way children learn differently than adults. American children's museums have been confronting this challenge since the turn of the 20th century. Knowing that they are many individuals' first museum experience, They ensure an engaging and memorable experience to create generations of curiosity seekers, learners, and cultural cooperators. These museums do this through unique learning experiences and interpretive practices which are more tactile, interactive, and inclusive than many major museum exhibits tend to be. In this episode, we will explore four institutions and then discuss how important they are in the museum field. Today, we learn by play on the Kalamazoo Valley Museums interpretive hour. My
1: name is Gray Wilson
0: and I'm Jacob Wolf. And today, we're going to start off by talking about our different children's museums in the United States. However, before we get into the museums themselves, let's give a little bit of a background on the institution itself. According to the Association of Children's Museums, children's museums are places where children, usually under the age of 10 years, learn through play while exploring environments designed for them. These institutions are a transition from museums being about something to being for someone. And the early institutions, including contemporary institutions, heralded the value of visitor-centered museums. Children's museums combine interactivity, child-adult, and child-environment activities. They focus on a theory of museum education, which explores the cognitive, social, and cultural aspects that go into learning for children. Sometimes these theories are selective, or sometimes they're intertwined. And oftentimes these institutions are guided by a contextual model of learning, which are sorted into three contexts, personal, physical, and sociocultural. We won't go into detail about this contextual model of learning, but if you are interested in this, consider looking into this model further. These institutions grew over the 20th century, 1922 saw only three children's museums in the USA. As of 2019, this increased to 400 and growing. These institutions foster the first museum experiences for many Americans. Therefore, they hold a lot of weight. To begin today's episode, our first case study will explore the first children's museum in the United States of America. This is the Brooklyn Children's Museum. The institution was established in 1899 and its original purpose was display collections which children could enjoy, understand, and use, to quote Jesse Swigger. By 1907, the museum inhabited the old Adam Mansion in New York City. It explored natural history, geography, United States history, and art. This institution was linked directly to the progressive movement corresponding at that time. The concept of progressivism is that governments take responsibility for their population's health, welfare, and education. It is a Western phenomenon. Famous individuals who were progressives, for example, were Theodore Roosevelt. In general, the progressive movement brought about more concern for children's health and well-being alongside their intellectual and moral needs. Hence why the Children's Museum came out of this movement. Also, overall, at this period of time, there was a push for the democratization of the arts and sciences, therefore, children being an audience important to expose to the arts and sciences. Anna Billings Gallup became curatorial assistant at the Brooklyn Children's Museum in 1902. She was a founding member of the American Association of Museums. Early talks by Gallup stated that they wanted the experience to be like entering a delightful home, where Every plan is for the enjoyment of the guests. Her goal was to build up gradually for the children of Brooklyn and Queens a museum that will delight and instruct the children who visit it, to bring together collections in every branch of local natural history that is calculated to interest children and to stimulate their powers of observation and reflection. The museum, through its collection, library, curator, and assistants, will attempt to bring the child, she said whether attending school or not, into direct relation with the most important subjects that appeal to the interest of children in their daily life, in their schoolwork, in their reading, in their games, in their rambles in the fields, and in the industries that are being carried on about them or in which they themselves later may be engaged. At the time, children could even borrow specimens from the museum and take them home like a loaning library. She also pioneered touch experiences after seeing a small boy leading his blind brother through the museum. These missions explore learning by play. They explore inclusivity, these concepts, very early on in America's museum history. And museum educators continue to exemplify progressive educational practices. Active engagement of visitors and the inclusion of interactive components in exhibits roots itself in these institutions and they continue on. Today, the Brooklyn Children's Museum is one of the first cultural experiences for many children, and as mentioned earlier, likely one of the first museum experiences for children. Therefore, it holds a lot of weight. Kids absorb their very early experiences in a big way. This encourages lifelong cultural engagement. It is a way for kids to experience cultures of the world in an interactive way, and the museum shrinks down real-life activities and real-life experiences for children. For example, World Brooklyn is an exhibit that is available year-round at the Brooklyn Children's Museum. To quote the website, in World Brooklyn, children play in kid-sized shops based on the real ones you find in neighborhoods across Brooklyn. In these environments, kids take on the roles of shopkeeper, baker, grocer, shopper, designer, performer, and builder as they gain an understanding and appreciation of the cooperative role that enables communities to thrive. This exhibit is designed to foster a greater understanding and appreciation of the world cultures found in Brooklyn. Through objects and stories drawn from real people and places in the borough's diverse communities, children learn about themselves and their neighbors. One can see how the progressivism of Brooklyn Children's Museum early history demonstrates that this inclusivity and inclusion continues on in the museum's mission and exhibits, and in a tactile way as well. Another exhibit available for children at the museum is the Science Inquiry Center. Here, children can explore some of the different ways scientists learn about our natural environment and local conservation efforts. In the exhibit, there are live animals from Camouflage, toadfish, the slithering snakes. And this demonstrates the museum's mission to democratize the arts and sciences for all groups, no matter their age or background. Finally, uh, another exhibit available at the museum is the Nest. This is a newer outdoor installation, and it was created by Brooklyn based design and fabrication practice Trilox. It is an interactive playscape located on the museum's rooftop terrace that provides a space for children and caregivers to play, climb, and explore the intersection of nature and the urban environment. Overall, what we see is an extremely tangible and interactive experience, one that fosters children's creativity and exposes them to arts and sciences in an exciting way, in a way that allows them to play, to be creative, to act in different roles, and to explore these different environments. And later in the episode, we'll explore this further. But for now, observe the Brooklyn Children's Museum and its various types of ways it enhances museum experiences for children. If you wish to learn more about the Brooklyn Children's Museum, visit www.brooklynkids.org and you can explore the many other exhibits that they have available and the ways these create unique and fun learning experiences for children.
1: To continue our conversation today is an outline of one of the most premier children's museums not just in the United States, but the entire world, being the Indianapolis Children's Museum. According to their website, the Indianapolis Children's Museum was founded in December of 1925, and at the time was only the fourth museum in the United States with an exclusive devotion to interests of young people. It was originally modeled after the first children's museum in the United States, the Brooklyn Children's Museum, as Jacob described, founded in 1899. The only other preceding institutions were the Boston Children's Museum and the Detroit Children's Museum. The idea of a children's museum in Indianapolis was brought forth by Indianapolis resident Mary Stuart Carey, who was inspired by a trip to the Brooklyn Children's Museum in October of 1924. With the newfound inspiration of the Brooklyn Children's Museum, Carrie convened a meeting that led to the formation of the Children's Museum Association of Indianapolis. From that point, a constitution, a set of bylaws, and a board of trustees were established, and she was chosen as the board's first president. The novel Indianapolis Museum was confronted with many difficulties after its creation, the most prominent being the lack of funds that restricted them from purchasing the collections of natural history artifacts that one might expect to find at an institution as such. This problem was soon solved, however, with the help of the community, donating hundreds of items. In addition to this initial concern regarding items to display, the museum also ran into problems related to where exactly to display them. To solve this conundrum, the museum changed locations countless times over the years. The initial location resided in a carriage house of the Local Literacy and Cultural Club before moving to a shelter house in Garfield Park. The museum then moved to the house of the founder, Mary Stuart Carey, in an expansion effort, and then again for the same reason, less than two decades later, to the corner of North Meridian and 30th Streets. By 1976, the Indianapolis Children's Museum built a new facility from the ground up, a process that included tearing down the current building in order to construct a five-story museum-quality building in preference to the decrepit locations that it had found itself in previously. From that point, the museum made many more expansions, but from the same lot. They were granted a donation of 124 acres on behalf of the Nature Conservancy, and over the course of the late 20th century made multiple other expansions of many thousands of square feet due to the popularity. Today, with a 481,000 square foot facility situated on 30 acres, it is the largest children's museum in the world. The institution states that, quote, arising from the progressive education movement of the early 20th century, the museum's initial operating premise was straightforward, to develop exhibits that were educationally sound, intellectually enlightening, and creatively engaging for children. It was to be a children's museum in more than the name alone, end quote. Throughout the years, the Indianapolis Children's Museum worked hard to set a high precedent in the field of youth education and employed many creative tactics to maintain this standard. By late in the 20th century, the museum was exploring many innovative avenues of education and so implemented its first dedicated science gallery in 1967, making a big splash in the museum community by means of their somewhat revolutionary approach to many educational topics. This gallery proved to be so successful that it became the standard by which all future science expeditions were evaluated, including exhibits on astronomy and space travel, medicine and health, and environmental issues. Having proved itself as a well-run, well-organized institution, the museum began to design a map for the future as they approached the 21st century, designating steps for museum operations as well as the development of programming. Among the newly developed programs were guided nature walks, night hikes, star watching, as well as classes and workshops on the land donated by the Nature Conservancy, in addition to programs specifically designed to foster cultural awareness, appreciation, and understanding. A true breakthrough in youth education at the time. Passport to the World, a collection of 50,000 toys and pieces of folk art from 120 countries, became an incredibly important element in the educational opportunities regarding cultural appreciation, as visitors could explore countries and their respective cultures from all around the globe. Another program with the same notion took place in the Bell Think Tank, which encouraged the interest and involvement in the sciences among adolescent girls and minorities. It gave students a chance to experience biology, botany, physics, and other scientific fields by means of hands-on involvement. The museum took advantage of every possible opportunity to provide hands-on programming and educational activities in in a variety of exciting ways. Even during the process of their final expansion, the staff developed an exhibit known as Structures, which gave visitors a chance to use hands-on activities to understand how buildings are constructed. Whether on-site, traveling, temporary, or permanent, the exhibit development remains a key component of the museum's mission. Today, programming continues to be generated at a high rate and explores much more complex topics than in the past. For example, is the Science Works Gallery, which contains a multitude of hands-on activities that investigate topics such as fluid motion, biotechnology, life underground, and construction engineering. This may seem daunting, yet the professionals at the institution are committed to making the experience both fun and engaging. As well as this are well-known exhibits such as the Dinosphere, featuring life-size skeletons, or Beyond Spaceship Earth, which presents an immersive international space station exhibit, or Treasures of the Earth, where children are free to explore the recreation of Egyptian tombs, reconstructed terracotta warriors, or the ruins of authentically designed shipwrecks. The exhibits mentioned only scrape the surface of what the Indianapolis Children's Museum has to offer, as the countless others follow suit in presenting education and exciting information with the goal of guiding children towards new avenues of knowledge that they may not have had the chance to explore elsewhere. If you wish to learn more, visit them online at childrensmuseum.org. The Indianapolis Children's Museum has long claimed the title of the world's largest children's museum and has often been rated as the best of its type as well. This is not just the result of high-quality facilities and exhibits, but also the large emphasis that is placed upon the constant development of new exhibits and the refurbishment of existing ones. As the museum states, quote, Change is essential to attracting new visitors and encouraging repeat visits. With the help of an active board of trustees and a talented, skilled staff, the Children's Museum has established itself as a leader in museum education, collaboration, and innovation, end quote. The Children's Museum of Indianapolis is a nonprofit institution committed to creating extraordinary family learning experiences that have the power to transform the lives of children and families, and over the course of the last 95 years, they've certainly accomplished just that. Over the course of its existence, the museum has created a legacy of improvements, expansions, and enhancement
0: that has moved it into the ranks of elite museums worldwide. And Gray mentioned this museum earlier when talking about Indianapolis, but today we're going to go a bit more into the Boston Children's Museum. This institution was opened in 1913 with Delia I. Griffin as the curator. It focused on natural history and ethnological collections, so that arts and sciences merged with cultural understanding, although perhaps a little different at that time. In 1919, Griffin stated that museums were uncontrolled by the politics which affected libraries and public schools. Therefore, she asked, How can we extend the scope of our work so that it will be a more active factor in forming the opinions and broadening the lives of both, quote unquote, Native and foreign born Americans? Her answer was outreach to diverse peoples. This included contacting churches or, quote, racial organizations. She mentioned that talks about other countries should include Dawson service from natives of these countries. She also wanted to include days which were of keen interest to, quote, different races. Although, naturally, as maybe you've already picked up, this language contains notes of nationalism and Americanization and a bit of paternalism, uh, assuming that uh, specific races have um, a particular keen interest in this or that. But nonetheless, this inclusion is unique and exceptional for 1919. And uh, this approach would shape the character of children's museums for years to come as inclusive spaces. In the 1960s, the museum pioneered hands-on experiences according to a documentary made by Great Museums, a documentary project. This institution focused on a child-centered type of programming as it always had. And it wanted children's first time to be a good experience to encourage lifelong learning and cultural engagement. The institution merged art, culture, and science, not just natural history and ethnological collections. And they wanted to simulate real-world experiences like tool use and shopping simulation. Early childhood education developed in the 1960s and the Boston Children's Museum was on the forefront of that by pushing learning through play. Mike Spock transformed the museum particularly into an interactive, experimental, vibrant space of community activity. There were exhibits that weren't also just about having fun and being creative, but also about real-world life experiences such as a death and loss exhibit, exposing children to a universal outcome for a lot of individuals and learning how to cope and deal with that, and how other people have. They also had an exhibit called What If You Couldn't, and this put kids in the shoes of those with disabilities. Also, an exhibit called We're Still Here has a Native American interpreter teach children about the continuity of their culture. Anawan Whedon wears modern clothes to show that he is a modern living person and juxtaposes this with his tribal clothes to demonstrate how he maintains his tradition and his culture. Boston and Kyoto also have a sister city relationship, so a Japanese home is in the museum. At the Japanese house, children can walk down the street, take off their shoes, and step into an authentic two story silk merchant's home from Kyoto, Japan. Families can explore every corner of this fully equipped Japanese house reconstructed in Boston by Japanese carpenters, and Japanese family life, customs, ceremonies, art, architecture, and seasonal events are all highlighted in the fully functional 100-year-old house inside the museum. And cultural experiences for children at the Boston Children's Museum expand beyond this. Boston's black community is represented in the city exhibit. There is a Dominican store, barbershop, etc. To quote their website about Boston Black, which is what the exhibit is called, Visit a carnival garage for a traditional Afro-Caribbean celebration and help to decorate a float. Go shopping at the Dominican store, learn about different hairstyles and ideas of beauty at John Smith's Barbershop, and dance to the Cape Viridian beat at Café Soldada. Developed with community leaders from across Boston and highlighting real people and places from the city, Boston Black is a dialogue about race, ethnicity, identity, and community. Overall, this demonstrates that this exhibit encourages conversations about race and identity. And all of these cultural experiences create a holistic experience that children can take home with them and use this early, lifelong experience to become lifelong cultural cooperators. Beyond this, there are also 50,000 objects in their collections alongside interactive aspects and exhibits. For example, the Hall of Toys displays many of these artifacts. Children can add a bit of fantasy in their experience and transport themselves into this tiny world that these toys represent. Overall, the museum encourages visitors to explore, take risks, and take imaginative leaps in art, science, and cultural education. Nowadays, with the pandemic, the museum even continues on its mission of educating. YouTube as a medium to educate children on STEAM topics is greatly impactful. In this case, Interactions with nature are encouraged by learning how to create a birdseed cake. Also, there's an activity on DIY lava lamps. This gives a history and science of the technology. Overall, this creates a tactile and interactive experience on science education and other types of forms of education from home during the pandemic so that children can still have that experience and the museum can still fulfill its mission. If you wish to learn more about the Boston Children's Museum's exhibits, there's a lot more to learn. So go ahead and visit their website at bostonchildrensmuseum.org. As we've
1: discussed on multiple occasions through our past episodes, Freeman Tilden's principles of interpretation make many important points, one of which is that programming for children should follow a fundamentally different approach. Young people have a particular interest in things that they can touch or take part in, which is precisely the mission of the last institution in today's discussion. As you might be able to tell by the name, the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia has established itself as a unique member of the museum community, with their entire focus being on tactile exhibitions and programs. The Please Touch Museum was established on October 2nd of 1976 by Portia Spur, a Montessori educator and was initially located in the Academy of Natural Sciences with the goal of engaging children's senses and igniting their imaginations. In no time at all, the museum had become a wildly popular destination, and so, due to its enormous popularity, the museum was forced to move on two separate occasions. In 2008, however, the institution changed locations for the final time and now resides in Memorial Hall, home of the 1876 Centennial Exposition. The massive building remains the only surviving building in Philadelphia from that time, and conveniently provided the museum with 40% more space than their previous location, more than enough to set up its galleries and avoid overcrowding. Upon opening in 1976, the Please Touch Museum devoted itself to ages 7 and under. The general concept of the novel museum revolved around a hands-on learning environment that would make learning an exciting experience. The museum consulted scholars from several disciplines to add intellectual content to its exhibits and developed culturally diverse programs designed for young audiences. The mission of the Please Touch Museum is to provide learning opportunities by means of play that lead to a lifetime of learning and cultural awareness. The museum is designed with the sole purpose of sheer enjoyment for children while maintaining a strong commitment to education. Amongst the many different exhibits, there are live plays, music, puppetry, and other performances done on a consistent basis. The activities and programs always highlight playfulness and enjoyability, creativity and innovation, education, safety and cleanliness, diversity, and collaboration. The museum is divided into approximately 14 different areas, each offering a unique hands-on activity for kids. Despite this, calling the Please Touch Museum a museum is a bit of a misnomer. Apart from the displays on the Centennial Exposition, there are no artifacts on display here. Instead, the Please Touch Museum features two large floors filled with tons of opportunities for kids to play and explore. The programs and exhibits at the Please Touch Museum offer a massive amount of educational opportunities with a focus upon literacy, science, and the creative-slash-performing arts. These educational goals have given way to exhibits such as Healthy Me or the Please Touch Garden to explore decision making and collaboration by means of health and wellness, the Children's Hospital to navigate the world of healthcare, or traveling exhibits that have to do with love and forgiveness. And again, if you care to delve deeper into the opportunities available, visit them online at PleaseTouchMuseum.org. Like the other institutions mentioned today, the Please Touch Museum provides these educational opportunities in a context that is fun and engaging, while guiding children through information that is highly pertinent in today's world. The practices are in many cases unique to these institutions after having worked for decades to develop superior educational approaches that grant them remarkable credibility in their field. Please Touch Museum is recognized internationally for their philosophy and achievement of, quote-unquote, purposeful play. In a setting with no emphasis on evaluation and in a more or less unregulated way, the exhibits produce opportunities for hands-on activities, large motor skill development, and role-playing opportunities. They believe that, quote, Play provides the foundation for basic life skills such as building relationships, cooperation, negotiation, and compromise, as well as providing opportunities for children to find out who they are and what they enjoy doing." End quote. The mission of the museum is to change a child's life as they discover the power of learning through play. More than ever, research shows the necessity of play in the social, emotional, and cognitive development of children. The work of the museum is to ensure that they are delivering outstanding experiences in a welcoming environment, which encourages learning through play. Their vision is of a world where all children are creative, compassionate, confident, and curious. It's well understood that this is a bold vision, which is why they work to create experiences that cultivate curiosity, create community, and are defined by excellence. And as we've demonstrated over the course of these four case studies, children's museums most definitely have potent educational benefits. With that said, let's take a deeper look into exactly what some of those might be. The following information is courtesy of a study done by the Minnesota Children's Museum, who have found that over the past few decades, researchers in the field of education and child psychology have amassed significant evidence for the necessity of play in children's lives. As children play, they develop integral cognitive, emotional, social, and physical skills. Play even contributes to proper brain development. The skills children learn through play in the early years set the stage for future learning and in the same way cultivate success from kindergarten classrooms all the way to the workplace. Children learn and apply cognitive skills including language, problem-solving, creativity, and self-regulation. As well as this, enhancement in a child's ability to interact with others, negotiate, and compromise are a clear indication of socio-emotional growth. They also exercise strategies to cope with fear, anger, and frustration. Moreover, block building, drawing, running, and jumping all contribute to the development of fine and gross motor skills. When children have the chance to direct their own learning through play, they are able to address their own immediate and developmental needs and find activities that are most conducive to their individual learning styles. In play, children develop a lasting disposition to learn. Having control over the course of one's own learning, as in free play, promotes desire, motivation, and mastery. Children also learn how to seek out knowledge. Play involves exploration, hypothesis testing, and discovery, and when all of this is done in a safe and anxiety-slash-risk-free environment, children are free to test the limits of their knowledge and abilities with relatively few consequences. They learn to have confidence in their ability to solve a problem, and they become resilient in the face of a challenge. Play builds the foundation for a lifetime of learning. Increasingly, however, to achieve success in a global economy, The individuals that make up our workforce must also be socially adept and highly creative. The six C's collaboration, strong communication, knowledge of content, critical thinking, creative innovation, and confidence to fail and try again will be essential to children's future success. Many of these skills are not easily taught in the classroom. However, they are readily learned through play. Without a doubt, it is clear that the educational impacts that museums have on children are very profound. They provoke critical thinking, provide new experiences, spark imagination, and familiarize children with unknown topics from around the world as well as their own community. Though children might not realize it, museums help them make sense of the world and expand their thinking in new and complex ways, and this is precisely one of the reasons that they function so well. One of the best ways to approach education for young children is to do so in a way that they don't realize is education. As has been discussed, a child's early years are an imperatively significant time for the development of fundamental academic, social, and cognitive skills that are somewhat decisive of their success later in life. For precisely this reason, the American Alliance of Museums expresses that museums are poised to nurture and support this success.
0: And as we explore these different institutions in this podcast, we've noticed that Many of these exhibits and experiences center around interactivity, and oftentimes this has to deal with physical touch. For example, the Please Touch Me Museum is named after a physical touch action. But in the pandemic and in the wake of COVID-19, this has become very complicated because how does one engage children interactively when one can't create tactile experiences where they touch things because it's just not safe right now? Well, according to an AAM article, that's the American Alliance of Museums, virtual visitorship during the pandemic has actually enabled outreach that is already preferable to children in the present. Currently, the Gen Z generation loves the technology that they use, and it's a primary way in which they engage and learn. So this is very important to recognize in the wake of the pandemic. And the same article advocates that children should be actively allowed to participate in decision-making in museum programming and the world around them. They should be active and constructive in the determination of their own social lives and education. Plus, children are primary motivators for the museum uh, visit for families, so museums should really consider their young audiences when curating exhibits. And in the wake of the pandemic, the National Museums of Liverpool created an exhibit activity for children that take all of these things in mind, both the virtual as well as the child's autonomy. And this exhibit project is called My Home is a Museum. In this project, children are asked to create a list of up to 10 objects that would be in their exhibition, or they could create their own art gallery. Then they would name their exhibition, design a poster, and create a promotional video. This would be compiled by the museum on their YouTube channel and in their collections, and it would be an active thing that people can interact with, view, and explore to learn about children's experiences and also provide an engaging and creative and tactile experience for children in the wake of the pandemic in a safe way that considers their perspectives. Another exhibit that didn't take place during the pandemic but could also translate very well into the pandemic happened at the Ipswich Art Gallery in 2013. This exhibit was called Light Play, and basically this is how it went about. Light was used as a creative material for the creation of ephemeral art. Children would experiment and learn through discovery-based learning on how to create different types of colors and Patterns. They investigated the concepts of transparency, translucency, pattern-making, and color mixing. And the way this exhibit worked was six overhead projectors were put against a 12-meter wall, and this created a light interactive activity that children could work with. And then also there were light table workstations for individuals or small groups of children and adults. And I think about the way in which this museum used tech to create a tactile experience where children didn't have to touch paint or uh, touch uh, pencils or drawings. Instead, they could just move the lights to create ephemeral art. And I think that maybe with our current technological sensibility, we could even create a mobile application to partner with this to control the lights so that children can safely create tactile experiences and creative experiences where they can learn about these different concepts while still being safe and uh, not having to worry about getting sick. In light of everything we've discussed today,
1: it's also important to take into account what exactly museums are trying to accomplish in a much broader sense. It is widely known that museums have the opportunity to increase our sense of well-being, give us pride of where we come from, and certainly challenge and stimulate us. That said, it is increasingly important for museums to analyze exactly what causes these feelings and how they can continue to provide for the community in the same way. Jennifer Farrington, president and CEO of the Chicago Children's Museum, states that you really have a responsibility to define who you serve, how you're going to serve them, what resources you're willing to dedicate, and then to measure that work so you can put into place a process of continual improvement. In today's ever-evolving society, it is so important that leaders of cultural institutions ask themselves what sort of difference their institution is making in the world. Social impact is not what the institution accomplishes, nor why they do what they do, but the effects of what they do on the community around them, the positive change they're able to enact for individuals and groups. This positive change very often involves inspiration of people and ideas and opening the door to debate and discussion regarding some of the contemporary issues in our world. For this reason, it is crucial for the museums discussed today, as well as all other cultural organizations alike, to not become institutionally centered, but rather community centered. In order to make a social impact, members of the community need to be involved, and so it is vital that the institution is willing to hear objectionable things and thus take the necessary steps to act on them. Museumassociation.org describes that, With society-facing issues such as poverty, inequality, intolerance, and discrimination, museums can help us understand, debate, and challenge these concerns. The Indianapolis Children's Museum, for example, has a goal of fostering cultural awareness, appreciation, and understanding, which is something that is not explored adequately in many facets of standardized education. With that said, they understand how the people of the cultures that are displayed see the relationship between their culture and the museum and ensure that the information is connected with their lives and issues. In a different way, the Please Touch Museum strives to change the lives of the children in the Philadelphia community by discovering the power of learning through play. This has caused a large social impact seeing that children are influenced towards creativity, compassion, confidence, and curiosity, and given an understanding of the fact that learning can be incredibly fun when approached in particular ways. This in turn creates a number of individuals with the skills and desire to be lifetime learners. Social impact can be something that's incredibly hard to measure, seeing that the way that community members feel about something or their thoughts on the matter can't be broken down statistically, and it's often difficult to do so much as follow up with visitors. Despite this, institutions such as those discussed today have long been able to adapt their programming and exhibits to work alongside the community in a way that changes lives, enriches the community, and makes their respective cities better places to live. And ultimately, that should be one of the goals of any cultural institution.
0: Absolutely. I think to the different cultural exhibits we've explored in this podcast and how they can hold potential to break down discriminatory barriers that many Americans face. Uh, for example, we think of uh, the We're Still Here exhibit or Boston Black or the Japanese House at the Boston Children's Museum. So, absolutely. And our final tidbit today that we've touched on a little bit Um, is about collections and collecting children's perspectives at museums. It's extremely important to uh, take into account children's perspectives when uh, creating programming, but also when uh, collecting at these institutions, because Childhood is a very pivotal part of many people's lives. It shapes them in a very direct way, and although it is but a small tidbit of one's life for many, it nonetheless uh, holds a lot of great importance and oftentimes is kind of put on the back burner as less important to more adult cultural activities or even teenage experiences or elderly experiences in the cultural world. And therefore, collecting children's perspectives of not only the pandemic, but also just artifacts in general, is a way to enhance the museum practice beyond education. I think of the Victoria and Albert Museum. They have a collection dedicated to children's toys and memorabilia. And these aren't children of any sort of notoriety, quote-unquote. They're just normal kids. And these artifacts document their childhood through scrapbooks, photographs, toys, and various other types of artifacts that can create very enlightening and very memorable exhibits that anybody can learn from, not only children, but also adults. So that is a very important uh, mission that children's museums can accomplish, and many do. And uh, that's the note I'd like to leave on today regarding collections across the board. And all of these things together are just a small amount of the important aspects to consider in American children's museums, because just remember what we've said. All in all, American children's museums are some of the first museum experiences for people in the United States. Therefore these experiences hold a lot of weight, because having a positive experience at an institution like this can expose someone to becoming a cultural cooperative person, to becoming an active learner, to becoming a curiosity seeker, all these things that create a well-led person in a contemporary society.
1: Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseumorg podcast for bibliographies, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind the scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay at home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy and visit us in two weeks for our year-end 2020 podcast retrospective.